Hey, everybody, and welcome to week 23 of 52 Weeks of Empowerment. And I am your host, Andrea Pagnosi. I am also a career empowerment coach who is fiercely dedicated to getting everyone in 2022 to realizing their true career potential. Today, we're going to have an opportunity to talk a little bit of shop around a topic that I think is very frustrating and often leads to people leaving their current place of employment because of dissatisfaction. We're going to be talking to an expert in the field who's worked with numerous corporate clients about this very topic. Find a, a midpoint. The topic is where trust meets alignment, where the employee can meet the corporation, the corporation can meet the employee part way so that there's a realization between what an employee needs to excel and feel included and what a corporation needs in terms of professionalism and effectiveness. My guest today deals with clients who are going through this, among other things, which we'll dive into as well. A gentleman that I've had the privilege of knowing for the past year and and working with, we have a, a LinkedIn Live program that we do that's a great learning for people who want to talk about, instead of calling it the great resignation, calling it the great alignment. So I figured he'd be the best person to have on the show. His name is Jay Marks. He's a certified Marshall Goldsmith CSC coach, and he's a certified four stages of psychological safety facilitator who has worked as a vice president in management learning and organizational development at the Capital Group. And while there, the firm grew from 600 to 9,600 employees. So he knows a thing or two about growth and corporations, learning. He's done it all. As a leader currently of the J. Marks Group, Jay gets leadership teams on the same page. And he helps leaders improve communication, team alignment, company infrastructure, all those reasons why some of you may now be thinking it's time to leave your place of business. The focus of Jay's practice is culture and change management and fixing the growing pains of startups and successful established firms. Jay, welcome to 52 Weeks of Empowerment. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. After that introduction, I better say there were some pretty good things here today. So, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. You have had a very spirited career in this framework. Share with our listeners about your journey and how you came to opening up your company as it currently stands today. Okay. Well, I think as I've heard many people say when they were talking about their experience and how they got to where they got to, I had some fortunate turns that I I probably wouldn't have anticipated. But I I think one of the things that got me to where I am when I was an undergraduate, a friend of mine said, hey, I I just went through this off-campus program and I I think you'd really love it. At that time, I was planning to become a psychotherapist. So I was studying clinical psychology and all that stuff. And the program was at a place called the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland. That particular learning institute was one of the earliest Gestalt Institutes and really started by the first generation of Gestaltists, if you will. And when I was there, their focus was both on clinical and psychotherapy, but also they have a handful of people who focused on organizational consulting. And this was kind of early on in the OD days. Every graduate school offered a master's 
in leadership or organizational change or, or whatever. There were very few programs in fact back then. And I met some people who did organizational work and, and that was new to me. As time progressed, I moved on and I was learning how to be a psychotherapist and I realized this really isn't for me. And I was fortunate in that I had the opportunity to work with an organization that was able to hire a couple of those organizational folks from Cleveland and got to work with them. And that's where I really started learning about what happens on the organizational level. And that was what really kind of got me fired up and, and got me interested. So from that point forward, I was certainly glad that I had as much experience as I did working at the individual level, because when you are working with organizations, you're looking at issues on the individual level, and then it really does feed into what you comment, commented on earlier, the alignment within the organization and what does the culture look like? And oftentimes that's an amalgam of the leaders. So that was the first really fortunate thing that, that happened to me and, and I think really set me in the direction of organizational consulting. I learned a ton about process and systems and infrastructure and how that has served me is oftentimes I, I think people who do what we do pretty much have a people orientation towards looking at organizations. Obviously that's important because that's what's often needed so of having the experience I had with this consulting firm for about four or five years. I learned a lot about infrastructure and process and systems. And so when I go into an organization today, I'm not only looking at the people side of the situation, I'm also looking at the infrastructure, because oftentimes, and particularly with growth, you know, if you're not paying attention to infrastructure and roles and how things change as you grow, that can lead to a lot of the people issues that follow. So there really is a strong interplay between those two sides. And then I'll, I'll say the third thing that was really fortunate for me is I ended up at the Capital Group which is just a truly a premier financial services firm. And Capital, Fidelity, and Vanguard are the top three. Well, they run the top three mutual fund groups in the United States. Uh, the Capital Group manages the American funds. And being there at a time when they grew from 600 to almost 10,000 people, and it was a privately owned organization, so we didn't have any of the pressures that public organizations have. I just learned a lot about growth, being around a lot of smart people, one of the top professional services and investment firms around. And that has really served me very well in terms of understanding growth and how to do that when it gets a little crazy. Focus is really on culture and how to make work as good as it can be, because I was at an organization for a long time where that mattered. Once you start looking at any organization, you do the things that matter. And, and so even in organizations that aren't aligned, and even in organizations that have what might feel like, uh, I'll just say, a crappy culture, they're doing the things that matter to them. Mm -hmm. You know, So in, in their own regard, I mean, they might be aligned, perhaps around values that don't serve the people in the organization. But the point is, I mean, we do it in our own lives personally. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we do what matters. So when we say, oh, I don't have enough time 
to do the things that I really want to do. A therapy setting, your therapist will say, well, actually you do Mm -hmm. have time for the things you want to do because that's what you're doing. It's the same in organizations. Organizations do what they want to do. An organization that really attracts the talent that they want in a very competitive market today and where employee values are so different than they were 10 years ago, yeah, uh, 15 years ago. And leaders have to, to get their head around the fact of maybe we need to do something different. And that's where being intentional comes in, is mm-hmm. that the greater the degree of doing something different that you're trying to accomplish, the more intentional you have to be about it because it's no different, again, than when any of us try to do something different for ourselves individually. And I don't care if that's waking up early or eating differently or being different in our relationships. You have to be intentional and really pay attention to it and have it matter. And it's the same as leaders. That's what leaders and organizations have to do. I want to go back to kind of the second point that you made when you were talking about how you became what you are today in terms of the business and why this is your focus and your passion. You talked about the expansion of an organization and pre-pandemic, the last four or five years were healthy in many industries. Companies were starting to expand again, infrastructure built. When I'm talking infrastructure, I'm talking about actual buildings that people went to. And there were a great deal of companies that started to just hire like gangbusters. Recruiters were coming out of the woodwork. LinkedIn became the number one search engine basically trumping that of monster.com and indeed.com in terms of how you network to find a job. What transpired at a lot of these companies, though, is that they expanded without that intentional part that you just mentioned. People were stepping all over each other. There was duplicitous work going on. And now we find ourselves trying to find our identity, maybe also affected by an inflation that's happening. But in the past few months, as I have heard from clients, they're using terms I've never heard before. Terms like workplace trauma, career homicide, dictatorship, duplicitous work when referring to their jobs. How did we get here? How did we grow so authentically and so at the detriment of the employees that work for them? Tell tell me your theories on that. Two things that come to mind. One is... When you're just really growing, there's a lot to deal with. You know, there's just a lot to pay attention. And, and you mentioned, you know, one of the, the most obvious and literal aspects of it, which is your your physical footprint. I mean, I remember a point early on in at the Capital Group where literally we couldn't get chairs and desks fast enough. And you know, we had folding chairs and folding tables, and that's how people were were working. That's what's happening. Growth is hard. You and I have worked as internals and externals. Not every company has the luxury of having sophisticated training people running around helping manage growth, particularly if you're in mid-size-ish companies. That's just one more thing that falls on the manager. If you work in an organization fortunate enough to have enough of an HR infrastructure 
to have people saying to you know the C-suite, hey, we really need to be paying attention to this stuff. And then plus you need the C-suite to pay attention to it. Growth happens differently. I think that that's one thing. And but just growth leads to uncertainty and change. Mm-hmm. Because once you start growing rapidly, stuff changes. And that's why I, I commented earlier about the importance of being able to integrate the infrastructure and the system side with the management and leadership and culture side. Because once things start growing and changing, roles change, interfaces change. Sometimes there's that lag between, yes, we're growing, and yes, obviously our revenue is increasing, but we haven't had a chance to get all the resources we need to support that growth yet. And so there's often resource shortage, which then can create department uh, competition between departments. And then we start getting the whole silo thing going. Growth leads to this uncertainty that can feed upon itself in an organization. And again, that's where until you have a chance to take a step back and breathe, you haven't realized that, you know, whatever those awful terms that you mentioned were the, if we want to address the last two years and the, the, the word that I will just use, I guess I'll use two, two words, extreme ambiguity in many organizations. I mean, for, for some, now I don't think it was business as usual for anybody, but the closer you were to being an essential service, at least the, the, the more your day-to-day may have looked similar, but you were still doing that work within a very ambiguous big picture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you put together the uncertainty and the issues that come with growth. You throw on a huge dose of ambiguity, a huge disruption of people's day-to-day routines, and we all get, we all get comfort from our habits. So that comfort was certainly disturbed. And so everything's kind of upended. So, and if you're growing in that environment, I mean, other companies were just kind of holding on. So they had a different kind of stress. But if you have the the stress of growth in an uncertain and ambiguous world, where, by the way, you might have loved ones who are sick, uh, loved ones who are, you know, whose lives are endangered, uh, you're concerned for your own health, your kids are at home with you making your nuts. There's a word that I guess was used too often, it was unprecedented, but when has that much craziness happened for organizations? So on one hand, is it a surprise that, you know, people are saying, I hate this because everybody hated it. Leaders hated it too. They weren't having a good time. All of this wrapped up into one enchilada sounds like a lot of trust loss. So if you came to a company that you had an immense amount of trust for, felt it had a great integral personality that you wanted to be a part of. Those days are kind of over when you're using words like career homicide. What I find so bizarre about the whole thing is that a little bit more communication and a little bit more thought and planning that could have gone into these changes may have saved them not only turnover, and employee satisfaction, but may have also saved their reputation in some instances. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's interesting how it's always the the newest and the latest 
thing, no matter you know where and what you're doing, whether it's technology or you know the latest bestseller and, and whatever. And then you read the book and you go, well, this is just repackaged <laughs> stuff. I mean, there certainly are innovations and, and there is news and there are new ways of, of looking at things. So I'm, I'm certainly not saying that that's not the case, but you're, you're one of the first things that you said a minute ago was a little bit of communication would have helped. It's so easy to overlook the basics. Yes, it's a hybrid world. And yes, now so much happens on Zoom that, that wasn't the case three years ago. And yes, people are onboarded so differently. And you know, the, the, the list goes on and on of all the things that are different. But you know, as much as things are, are different, things are the same, which is if you do a good job of, of onboarding and setting expectations and communicating clearly and taking the time to connect with somebody, even if it's over Zoom, and you know, I'll be the, the first person to acknowledge that it's different. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the first time I had to do a 60-person meeting on Zoom, it was, you know, I mean, I, I think we're, you know, many of us are used to being in the room, making eye contact, reading what's going on in the room, and deciding what am I going to say next. Sure. Well, when, when, when you have 60 people, you can't even see anybody or everybody, I should say. Let me pause you there because this is an exact segue to what is going through my mind right now, which is how do you evoke trust in a virtual setting? Because there's a lot of companies that in order to sustain what they have, they're creating creative workspaces, right? They're hybridizing their workspace, location-free, work from home, do whatever you have to do. But in operating in a virtual framework, how do you evoke trust if you can't see the whites of people's eyes and they're not on camera, so to speak? What, what ways have you seen companies implement trust in a virtual environment? One of your, your comments earlier about just growth and change gets at this, which is companies, in order to create that sense of trust today, one of the, I think one of the first things they have to do, if not the first thing, is, is really have the discussion and have it be as inclusive a discussion as possible. But I think it, it really, some people might disagree with this. I, I think it does need to start with the leadership team about what's important today. Because what's important today may still be the same as what was important three years ago or two years ago, or it may be different. But I, I think that one of the things that you have to look at in order to have that foundation, if you're going to develop trust, you know, again, you commented, people were moving so fast, they didn't even time, to, they didn't take time to think about certain things. So I think now we have to take a step back and slow down. And for any company that's going to say, we don't have time to do that, they're going to continue to have a problem. Because somewhere along the way, you have to take that step back have the conversation at least at the senior level to say what's really important to us and, and include as many people in that conversation as you can. And then I would say cascade that conversation to include others and, and say, we think that these are some of the important things. Even if you don't want to set it up that way, say, 
hey, what do you think is important for us today? You can do that on a team level, on a business unit level. It depends on how big the organization is. But even in a department in a business unit where there's probably, it, it has its own little infrastructure of a number of team leaders, supervisors, managers, whatever you want to call them, some sense of shared understanding and connectivity and say, well, this is what we think is important. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to agree with what I think is important. This whole idea of inclusion, and I think that unfortunately, inclusion has become a bit of a label. Agreed. Always been companies who were just going to check the box to do whatever they needed to do to look right. But if you're really going to look at inclusion, inclusion means being included, feel like I belong. And so how do people feel like they belong? Mm -hmm. Uh, You feel like you belong and you feel included when somebody is interested enough to ask you what you think Mm -hmm. and listen. And this is where something as, you know, as innovative as listening skills come into play. That was sarcastic. Can, can I reflect back to you what you just said to me to show you that I actually was listening to you? Right. And, Active and, listening. Yep. And if that person, you know, and if your teens and your departments feel like at least you listen. Now, I don't think people are that unrealistic that they think you're going to do exactly what I, I, what I expect as an employee all the time. But if I expect at a minimum to be treated with respect and to be included and to have my point of view recognized, that's how you start building trust. We were talking earlier, you just told me the story about a company that spent, I don't know, it sounds like at least fifty or $60,000 to do something that they thought was going to create inclusion. And they did it without considering the point of view of the people they were trying to create that inclusion experience for. And the people ended up feeling like, okay, you spent $60,000 to ignore me. Exactly. I think this goes back to conversations you and I have had historically too, where we talk about the Band-Aid and the hemorrhage, that companies are willing to put a change in place, but they only go so far to implement real strategic solutions. And to me, it makes little sense because it costs more in the long run to do a one and done off the shelf, check a box type solution or strategy than it does to invest in really building trust, really creating a center of inclusion and losing people in the process because it's not genuine. What do you say about this? I think you, again, used a, a word which people respond to differently but it's genuine. So what does it mean to be genuine anymore? I read, actually, I just posted it on LinkedIn. Somebody wrote this great article about the whole thing about being yourself at work. And I've said for years, that's a double-edged sword because in this article, they, they referenced people just saying what was on their mind, which was, even though it was honest and sincere, it was relatively inappropriate. It was relatively divisive. It was relatively... Not a good thing. This article talked about, if we're going to talk about being authentic at work, let's talk about what it means to be authentic at work Mm -hmm. and create some some understanding of that and some expectations of what it means to be authentic at work. Because they, they gave the example of how somebody was authentically saying to somebody else, I think you're 
really racist and taking advantage of me at every opportunity. And not that that doesn't need to be addressed. And how, when that happens in uh, a totally, if you will, I, I guess, un uncensored and unthinking kind of way, well, how that totally diminishes psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Because when, when we, you know, when we talk about being ourselves at work, often we talk about that in tandem with creating a sense of, of psychological safety. Because when we have a sense of psychological safety at work, what that means is I can share my ideas and not feel judged and not feel like I'm being penalized for saying the thing I want to say at that moment. And so, yes, that's what psychological safety is about. And in order for that to really work well, there needs to be some kind of groundwork that says to people, hey, if you're going to say something, let's say that strong, particularly to another person, how do we create the right context for having that conversation? And how do we say that in a way that doesn't do damage? But what you have to do to create trusted work is create some degree of shared understanding, that's where it starts the next level of saying, okay, so we've had the conversation about what's important at work. Everybody didn't agree about this, but this is what's important at work. This is what's important for us right now. And this is what we're going to do our best to live up to. So then that's what you have to do. You have to live up to it. And, and that's where at, at that level, I mean, we've, we've heard for probably decades already, people don't leave jobs, they leave management maybe a little less true than it used to be, but it's still pretty true. And so if leaders don't walk the talk, we have to be accountable to that. Fact is, they still expect leaders to be credible. It's one thing for a leader to say, okay, I think I've done this pretty well, or I think I'm doing this, or to be able to say, I'm human too, and I didn't do it this time, you know, to bring in, that's what I think being authentic is about. And that's what I think being uh, vulnerable is about to say, okay, I, I'm not perfect. You being human and being real and acknowledging, okay, I'm not always going to be perfect, but I'm really trying to make this work. But if they see leaders just being, you know, saying one thing and doing another and being totally BS about things that are you know, values or what's supposed to be important or any of that stuff, how are you supposed to build trust in the absence of that kind of credibility? Especially if you have taken a job on the sheer interview vibe that you get from a leader when you ask them pointed questions about how empowering they are and inspirational they are, motivational they are. If they do not walk the talk, the sum total is I've made a big mistake with my career and I now don't trust this person. It's reflected of not trusting the organization. So it, it begs the question, who's steering the ship when it comes to alignment on what's important to an employee? Is it senior leadership? Is it human resources? Is it leadership? Is it training to train the leaders to do a better job of being authentic and having more empathy and coming to the table with more humanity and humility? Where do you think we see the future of corporations trying to be do a better job, frankly, of being trusted and evoking that type of trust in their employees? I hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out, but it's everybody's job. How often do you see some type of initiative get kicked off 
and then get handed off to human resources mm-hmm. and, and not to diminish the role of human resources in any way. And, and if you have a wonderful, dynamic, inspirational HR team or, or leader, it's not that they can't carry it off. It's not that they can't do those things. Who runs an organization? It's still leadership. You know, it's, it's still, I mean, I've been in enough situations where an initiative gets turned over to HR or turned over to me as the consultant to, to work for people to make it happen. And I'm always happy to do that as a consultant because that means I'll be there for a long time and I'll, I'll probably <laughs> get a pretty good fee. But Ultimately, what matters to people, and if it doesn't matter enough to leaders to be in certain meetings or do certain things and be available in certain places, or at least have really good proxies to do that, then I I just think, again, it, it allows employees to say, what the hell's going on here? The word integrity means integrated. Mm-hmm. If those behaviors and words and proclamations and initiatives aren't integrated and aren't demonstrated in a, in a way that really reflects that it matters and that it's important and consistency. I've had people say to me, you can, you can give people the harshest feedback they've ever heard and they're good with it. And, and that's what's to me, that's what psychological safety is, is that you're able to create a context and a relationship. And in that interaction, say what needs to be said. Awesome. Well, for those of you who've enjoyed Jay's perspective today, and um, I know I have, it's been very educational and alignment is key for trust. I think trust, um, you really have to have a clear continuity of trust in order for the alignment to exist. I thank you for the points that you've made tonight. I think it's been a real reflective conversation too, based on the education that I've received this evening and the ability to go back to some of my clients and and have a more detailed discussion from the corporate perspective. So I thank you. For those that would like to work with you, what's the best way to reach you? I would say the best way to reach me, well, I'm certainly on LinkedIn. So if you find me on LinkedIn, you can message me there or jmarksgroup at gmail.com is uh, where you can send me an email. Well, I want to thank you for joining this evening. I want to thank all our listeners for joining this evening. As you know, we're fiercely dedicated to giving you the information you need to succeed in your career in 2022. And hopefully we've given you some food for thought relative to aligning with the company you're in and getting trust the way that you deserve and want to have it. And as leaders operating with the type of trust and integrity that will continue to maintain and grow your teams and the potential of your organization will follow. I want to thank listeners for tuning in this evening. We will catch you next week. Same time, same place, more power.